Today's Ringer NBA show brought to you by Hotel Tonight. Here's a little insider travel secret from our friends at Hotel Tonight. There are tons of empty hotel rooms out there just waiting to be booked. That's how Hotel Tonight scores such incredible deals. They team up with awesome hotels to help them sell the rooms and pass the savings on to you. Not like last resort places. They work with cool, top-rated hotels where you actually want to stay. And even though their name's Hotel Tonight... You can actually book up to 100 days in advance in top destinations and up to a week in advance everywhere else. So if you want to start scoring amazing deals at incredible hotels, download the Hotel Tonight app now. Welcome to the Ringer NBA Show. I'm Chris Vernon. Joining me as he does every, well, typically on Tuesdays, but this week on Monday is Kevin O'Connor from TheRinger.com, a.k.a. Kevin O'Bomber, a.k.a. Kevin O'Concert, a.k.a. Kevin O'Comment. Kevin! <laughs> what up, Chris? The reason we're doing this today is because John Gonzalez is in Minneapolis celebrating his beloved Eagles' first Super Bowl victory. How big of a Patriots fan are you? I'm a big-time Patriots fan, dude. I've watched every Super Bowl, every game, you know, with my dad you know, all over the years. So, I mean, it's it's a special thing. I'm a huge Patriots fan. It's helped shape me as a person, if I'm really being honest, just, you know, watching them growing up. Were you crushed? No, not at all. I'm just eternally grateful that it's it's gone as long as it has. And they, they were, Chris, I was 11 years old when the Patriots won their first Super Bowl. I'm 27 now. Like so much has changed in my life and everybody's life in the world and yet in the sports world too. And yet one constant is Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are still winning games that they're still going to the Super Bowl. The loss sucks and obviously it's disappointing, but I mean, everything right now just feels like gravy. It's just really, really spoiled as a fan, just thankful that it's gone on as long as it has. But even then, like there's no guarantees that it keeps going. This could be the last one. Right? There's no certainties in sports. You were 11? I was 11 years old. Good grief, I'm old. 2001, <laughs> 2002 season was the first, you know, so 2002. Who, who are you blaming today? This is going to be like a, a, a typical, like, Patriots, you know, answer, but there's no one person that can be blamed. The defense, you know, stunk. Special teams made mistakes. Bill Belichick not playing Malcolm Butler, probably a mistake. You know, offense had a lot of great plays, but they also <laughs> missed some plays. Everybody missed plays along the way. I don't think there's any one person you can blame for the loss. The Eagles had an outstanding game plan. Doug Peterson called a hell of a game. Yeah. Nick Foles played his ass off. Dude, that was an unbelievable game yesterday. Yeah. Unbelievable, wasn't it? You can't let Brady get sacked there. You can't. I know. I, you know. Gotta, I mean, you got a timeout and the two-minute warning. I know. Oh. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I was so – at the end of that game, you know, it's like you just got to give Tom Brady a chance. So then when they turn the ball over – Right. I'm saying to him, okay, you just get a three and out here. Right. Yep. They yep. kick a field goal. They'll, you know, maybe the field goal gets blocked. Maybe the field goal is a miss and you have great field position with about 50 seconds left. And if they make it, you know what? You need to get eight points. Right. And they got the opportunity after causing the three and out and they're just going to come through. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's disappointing, but they were in a position to at least win the game or tie the game and they didn't. It sucks. But I mean, the journey was unbelievable so far. I mean, we'll see if it continues. I think Patriots fans are going to be okay. Uh, yeah, but it's obviously the, it was the biggest story of the Very weekend spoiled. by far was Super Bowl Sunday. But we talk about the NBA. And so let's talk about the biggest story in the NBA over the weekend, <laughs> which was a nationally televised uh, showdown between the Houston Rockets and the Cleveland Cavaliers, two premier teams for sure. And Houston absolutely trashed them. They won, they won the game 120 to 88 every time uh, that score went by the ticker. Because uh, once they got up by about 30, <laughs> I was like, okay, forget about this. And and every time I checked in on the score, it kept getting worse. Uh, the <laughs> final was 120 to 88. You feel like they could have won by 100 if they wanted to in that game. And so what came out of it was obviously everybody doing, everybody doing the hand-wringing about Cleveland. But beyond that, uh you know, I think everybody was saying the same thing. This is what's going to this is going to be the one that gets uh, Ty Lue fired. And then Adrian Wojnarowski by the evening uh, had put out a report saying we're sticking with our coach. We're not getting rid of Ty Lue. Um, and so now here we are. We'll get into both of those teams. But that particular outcome 
over the weekend between Houston and Cleveland. What was the biggest takeaway for you? <laughs> to me, I mean, I was thinking about, okay, so what, you know, me and me and Chris are going to talk about this next week. And my thought was, well, wait a minute, what else is there to really say? I mean, we've talked all season long about how the Cavaliers have personnel problems on their team. And without changes, they are going to be limited when it comes to the playoffs. We talked about that in late October, early November. We talked about it in December, when even when they were surging, it's like, well, they still need changes. We talked about it in January, and now we're talking about it in February. And so, so with Ty Lu, it's like, yes, you could change the head coach, and maybe changing Ty, maybe firing Ty Lu is the right decision. Maybe it is, but it's kind of hard, in my opinion to say he's at fault when you look at the roster and it's all old old guys it's all slow guys lebron is has even taken a very very subtle step back this season from the past maybe that's due to effort but the fact is is that he still has regressed very slightly so the thing is is they need to change the roster and if they're going to do that, they need to put the Nets pick on the table. But I don't think they should put the Nets pick on the table because I think that's more valuable to them looking over the next four to five years than it is to anybody else. Very strange situation, too, because of the guy that put together the construct of that team. You know, there's all these stories coming out that the owners having more say in things than in the past. And I think people felt yeah. like David Daniel Griffin. Yeah, that, that Griffin was in charge. And, you know, that was such a strange story. A team that had been to the NBA Finals, uh, the amount of times that they had, and and then swung that massive deal where they were going to be making a big change over the summer. And now, so the guy that, like, kind of put this all together, and it was his vision, at least in some way, he's not there anymore, right? And and they went out. And, uh, you remember they went and tried to get Chauncey Billups. You look and yeah. you go, boy, I, I guess you I guess you know why Chauncey Billups. Yeah. Didn't, didn't I wonder why. Job. I wonder yeah. why. Right. Right. And so now it'll be very fascinating to see what they do at this trade deadline because I feel like we had kind of a beat on them and at least had a feeling about uh, about Griffin and kind of his thoughts on things and the way he constructed rosters. I mean, I have no idea where you start or what you do. If you're the Cavaliers, because outside of signing guys that get waived or cut, this is your opportunity to change things, to improve this team. And inevitably, it will have to happen, you know, if it's going to happen in a big way by Thursday, right? It's interesting with Cleveland because it's pretty clear that the relationship with between LeBron and Dan Gilbert is probably one of the reasons with the poor relationship that he might have, right, with the Cavaliers. I don't think it has anything to do with anybody else in that organization. I don't think it has to do with Ty Lue, or, or, or I don't think it had anything to do with David Griffin or anybody else in that front office. It's Dan Gilbert. So if Dan Gilbert wants to be the Jerry Jones of the NBA, then, then good for him. But it's, probably, it's not in the best interest of the franchise moving forward. With, with Cleveland, I get why people want to put that Nets pick on the table. I get it, but my question, you know, is like, what what are you going to get back for that? I mean, I mean, is there anything that you have in mind, Chris, that that you would deal that pick for if you're the Cleveland Cavaliers? I, I would not be clutching on to that pick. I don't think you should um, either. But like, what is there that you're going to let it go for? Well, I'd take my shot at the title because I I would view it like I'm going to lose LeBron. This thing has always been simmering with him and Dan Gilbert. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. it never went yeah. away. I remember never. over the summer and people could probably find this on YouTube, but there was this store or there was this. It was kind of like a, a documentary yeah. thing that came out. The barbershop conversation. Yeah, right? the barbershop. Yes. Right. Yes. And, I was just thinking about that. And LeBron yep. is there. If anybody can watch it back, he does not call Dan, Dan Gilbert by name. And then when he gets into his whole going back to Cleveland thing, um, he talks about how his mom said, you can do whatever you want. I'm staying in Miami. And <laughs> and his wife was against it. So, I mean, you have like the two most important people in your life, your wife and your own mother, who neither one of them were supportive of him going back to Cleveland in the first place. And so this is when, when it comes to that moment where he's got uh, these upset feelings towards Dan Gilbert, I always think of this in the context of when you go home, there's nobody saying work it out with the guy. They're all saying, screw this guy. We've always hated this guy, right? And so I would look at it through the prism of I'm losing this guy, so I better take my shot now because it may be a long, long, long time, maybe forever, till I have uh, you know, a shot at the title again.
But what if you're losing him anyway? Okay, so let, let's say that is a scenario. What if he's gone whether or not you trade the pick? What if he's gone even if you go to the finals and it's like a six, seven-game series that you lose, right? Let's mm-hmm. say let's say he's gone. I mean, if you win it, you're going to trade that pick, right? But anything aside from that scenario, they're not going to win the finals and LeBron's leaving anyway. Is it really in their best interest to trade that pick? Because I don't think I don't think there's a trade that moves the needle enough to really give them a significant chance in the playoffs, unless there's a lot of injuries in the Western Conference. I mean, I'd have to know what it is. You know, it'd have to be an outstanding player for sure. I just don't think it's out there. DeAndre? I don't think DeAndre is an outstanding player, and I, I I'm not even sure how much he's going to make an impact against the Warriors. I just don't know if it's out there. It's just it's what I, it's what I told you last week, though. I do believe that there is a. And you could argue whether or not that he would be able to fit that mold. But, you know, back in the day when when Tristan Thompson was getting double doubles and he was putting up big numbers, I mean, the way you got to you got to slow that game down, try to play him in the 90s and destroy him on the boards. I mean, that's your that's your shot. Yeah, that's your shot against the Warriors. And I do think that DeAndre could help in that sense. I do think if they added George Hill and DeAndre Jordan, that it would that would make them significantly better, significantly. It would better. help. I mean, it w- it would definitely help. I I just I just don't know if it's enough. I don't even know if it's enough against the Rockets. I mean, like we're talking all about Cleveland, but that Houston team is unbelievable. Even James Harden wasn't really clicking in, in a twenty in a thirty two point victory. He yeah. scored sixteen points on sixteen shots, one of eleven for three. And James Harden is probably the most valuable player. I mean, last time we recorded, last Tuesday, that night he scored 60. 60 points, dude. It was the most points anybody's ever scored with a triple-double in league history. Harden's the MVP. And I, I, I mean, we're talking about Golden State. Can Cleveland beat Golden State? What if Houston were to upset Golden State? I don't know if Cleveland can beat Houston either. To your point, Zach Cram from The Ringer sent along to us that with Paul Harden and Capella, I remember a couple weeks ago I told you I had read that they were like 18 and 0 or something. They are now with all of the <laughs> with those three guys healthy in their lineup. They have played 23 games. They are 22 and 1 and have won by an average margin of 14 points. Whew. I mean, killing it. Simple is getting pretty big now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. and they have lost once when all three of those guys are healthy, that is incredible. And I think everybody looks with a skeptical eye at Houston and says, all right, this is a team that's it's obviously devastating offensively. They're killing people during the regular season. The stats are the stats with those three guys healthy. It is you've got to do it in the playoffs for 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 everybody to believe in you. And until that happens, and until Harden comes up huge, and Paul, for that matter, because it's not like they added a guy that has been known for coming up huge in the playoffs. Um, until it happens, people are going to be skeptical of what they're capable of. This might be like a naive comment of me, but you know, to, to your point, you know, people people are skeptical, right? You know, they cite D'Antoni's sons. You know, they failed all the time in the playoffs. They cite you know Chris Paul's failures in the past. They cite James Harden's failures in the past. And there's some logic to talking about Paul and Harden specifically as players uh, with how perhaps their play has slipped in the playoffs. But maybe it's naive of me, but I don't know. I don't know how much value I would put in those past situations because this is different, right? This is two Hall of Fame level point guards with Chris Paul and James Harden. Not just one. It's not just Steve Nash. It's not I just Chris va- Paul. I put value in it. I it, do. It, I put value two, in it. Though. You have one of those guys on the floor the entire game. And I not know, only that, the, in the this, defense, this defense is better than any of those Suns defenses in the past, better than any Rockets defense in the past. Harden was hurt last year in the playoffs and tired. I just don't know how much value can be placed on those past performances, those past shortcomings, when this team is just flat out different. I ain't trying to hear that that Harden is tired crap, okay? Dude, this he, guy, in the biggest spots, Kevin, yeah, you go back to Arizona State, I, and we go he's back to Oklahoma City too. Oklahoma City in the finals, he was, he stunk. He was bad. It, you he can stunk. go back to college. I know. I go know. look at it. Go I look know. at the tournament game he played I in. Know. You know, every time it gets to, so we can we can make an excuse every single time, but there's something there. I mean, you got to come know. up big in a big <laughs> spot, man. I mean, and he comes up small. Okay, it's not like he hasn't had big games in the playoffs, though. I mean, so. I mean, I'm saying when it matters most, when it's all on the line, when you have to win or your season's over, 
Hell, the one time they made it to the Western Finals is because McHale put them on the bench. <laughs> and Corey Brewer and Josh Smith hit 500 threes. You know what I mean? He wasn't responsible for that. He just, I mean, you got you to gotta do it. And, and listen, great players over time, you're the guy that can't get it done until you're the guy that Bingo. gets it done. Exactly. I'm aware, right? Exactly. It happened. That's listen, the way I feel about it. It's Phil Mickelson can't win the major, and it's A-Rod yep. can't do this. Peyton and it's, Manning. Peyton Manning yep. can't do this. It's always, Tons of guys. You know, it's always somebody. You, don't, you can't get it done until you do get it done. And usually the great players end up getting it done. In the game you're referring to in college, it was against Syracuse. Syracuse beat Arizona State 78-67. to Harden scored 10 points on 2 of 10 shooting, 5 assists, 2 turnovers, 6 rebounds. Really a flat stat line for a guy who had a spectacular season and then was went on to be a top draft pick in the NBA. And you're right. you know, It does go back to college. goes back to when he was a young guy in Oklahoma City. It's happened in Houston. I'm not putting so much into that when this team is just different. If there's just totally different scenario with this defense is so much better, there's less need to put up 120 when your defense is as good as it is. When you got have guys like Trevor Ariza, when you have Clint Capella, PJ Tucker, you have a lot of good defensive players on the team. You have Chris Paul as well. They they have a lot of talent on the defensive end of the floor. And I just think this team's different. I respect, you know, that mindset, you know, these guys have tricked in the past, but I, I just think this year's different. I, I think they have a chance to at least make it a hell of a series with Golden State. Well, Golden State now, you know, given Houston's recent, uh, I mean, they, they keep on winning. They're, they're only one game back in the loss column from Golden State, who took a loss over the weekend. You heard Kerr saying, like, we're just, we're just crawling into the all-star break. We, you know, they see the All Star break and they just want to get there um, at this point. And they played that game against Denver on Saturday night, and that was obviously a great win for Denver. And then you see after the game, did you see the? Uh, did you see the announcer, the Golden State announcer? No, I was talking about like he was talking about, and he had talked about it throughout the. Uh, he had talked about it throughout the game. He gave out this stat, and it was like. Teams like West Coast teams that have traveled to Denver for a back to back are five and 24 there. Wow. And he was like, oh. the league needs to get rid of this. This is such an advantage because evidently, hmm. you know, from most places that you come from, huh. you're going to, you get the time change. And beyond the time change, Denver's one of those cities where the, the airport, it takes a long time to get to your hotel. So you get the time change. Then you get the hotel, and then that altitude stuff is real, right? I mean, like, it takes a while to adjust when you go there. And so the idea is they've got this real advantage if you're going there on the second night of a back-to-back, as was the case with Golden State. So who knows? I guess it was Baxter, uh, Baxter Holmes writes this really interesting article every month at the beginning of the month for ESPN. It's just called uh, – it's like schedule alert – and he just outlines the games throughout the month that teams are going to lose. And, I mean, the thing has been like 90-something percent. Like, they have a formula that he's put together, and he'll give the game like this game score, and it's like, here's a trap or here's a loss. And it's not just teams. like, it's not just picking games like, Golden State's going to beat Atlanta. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's, here is, here is the scenario Here's how many games they've played in the last week. Here's their travel schedule. And here's and and the other team's been sitting around at home waiting on them. Whatever. So I kind of had already thought to myself, hey, maybe Denver will be able to get a big win tonight. Denver is an interesting one because I've watched them four or five times this season at the end of their games. And I've thought to myself over and over again, I don't know why they don't have a point guard. Like I just I get it, right? Giving the ball to Jamal Murray or Gary Harris or Will Barton. They've got a lot of guys that can handle the ball. I just, there's so many times I think, boy, if they just had somebody to settle them down, throw it to somebody, because it seems like at the end of the games in crunch time, the ball ends up in Barton's hands or it ends up in uh, Murray's hands. And the decision-making, right, it is not the decision-making necessarily of a point guard many times. And I'll be fascinated to see if they get somebody. because I think if they got a point guard, like a real one, and they got Millsap back, they could be a team that you just do not want to see in the playoffs. They could put the fear of God into somebody. I don't know if they could beat 
uh, one of the one of the best teams, but they could scare the hell out of them. I mean, they had an opportunity if they wanted it to trade for Kyrie Irving during the summer. They could have traded right. Jamal Murray first round pick and and another piece to try to get that done for Kyrie, and they passed on that because yeah. they wanted to stay with their youth movement. and And I think I think that might have been what uh, Coach Mike Malone was alluding to after one of their wins. I think I believe it was after Thursday night's win against the Oklahoma City Thunder when they went won in the final seconds, um, where Malone said, "You know, we had opportunities to add guys this summer. And we wanted to stick with our younger team." Right. And I, th- I think we're really starting to see that with the, with the play of Jamal Murray ever since early December or so. Murray has just been on a ridiculous tier. And Thursday night was kind of his coming out party. He's outstanding. And, and you, you mentioned the lack of a point guard. You know, Nicole Jokic was outstanding that night, too. He had 14 assists against the Oklahoma City Thunder with only two turnovers. Mm -hmm. So they don't have a traditional point guard, but with their style of play, they have just multiple guys who can handle the ball. And sometimes, the, the the more guys who can attack from different spots of the floor, sometimes the better that can be. I mean, it's a different style of offense. I mean, we just talked about Houston where they have, you know, either Chris Paul or James Harden bringing the ball up, running high pick and roll. Denver has a handful of guys that can beat you, whether it's Jokic playmaking, Murray can Murray still developing, Will Barton as well, um, Moutier off the bench. Granted, he hasn't developed as much to do ex- as you would expect. And even Trey Lyles a little bit, good passer for, for his position. They're a fun team, and I don't know how much of a playoff threat they're going to be, um, but they're certainly fun, and I, I think that we're seeing signs of what could come in the future. Paul Millsap getting back soon. Um, they're definitely going to be better come playoff time. Uh, maybe they slide into that six or seven yeah. seed, and they're a tough out. Well, the Moody A thing hurts. For sure. Because he was a high draft pick, yeah. and he's, 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 he's no good. And they're talking about him possibly being moved. Maybe by Thursday, right? Like he he's listed with kind of other young guys that are out there, the Alfred Paytons of the world, the Julius Randles, like that these guys could be moved somewhere. Young guys that the teams are not going to commit to anyway, and so they could be on the move somewhere. I don't know if you can get anything for Moutier. I mean, you'd almost have to package it with something that I'd want in order for me to take him. Like I just, I'm out on him. I'm out. I'm out on. I'm out on Moutier, and obviously he's been. Rather useless to Denver. I didn't love him in the draft. I mean, I thought he was a fine prospect. I just love him though. Um, you know, he's still twenty one. If you're if you're a team that you know you can get him for a low cost and you want to bring him in and bring him in and hope that a change of situation um, helps things for him, then go for it. I, I I wouldn't completely give up on him, but he's certainly nowhere near, and he hasn't made anywhere close to the type of progress you would have expected in his third season. He hasn't. He hasn't made much progress at all. It, it's it's kind of yeah. kind of that's the disappointing part, right? Um, it, there's been li- little movement, but maybe a change of scenario could help. Uh, well, you were talking about where they could end up seeding wise. They're a game up on uh, the Clippers. They are three and a half up on Utah as of right now. You know, there's that top four, and then there's a break in the action in the Western Conference, right? Because the Thunder have lost three in a row. Four, four now. Oh yeah, they've lost four, four in now. a row. Yeah. I'm sorry. They'll end up there. I would be surprised if Oklahoma City's not a top five seed. But as it stands right now, they're five, and the Clippers are nine, and there's only two and a half games between those two teams, which is kind of crazy. There's a bunch up between uh, Oklahoma City, Portland, the Pelicans, the Nuggets, the Clippers, and then you've got the Jazz who have won five in a row, and I watched them versus the Spurs, and I swear if you would have watched this game, Kevin, you would have thought Ricky Rubio was like the best player in the world. (laughs) He was unbelievable. I mean, he was like driving down the baseline and – you know, uh, dishing it back to Gobert for dunks, or he was finding favors, and he he hit damn near every shot he took. I, now, they said at the end of the game, he tied his career high. So, like, I just so happened to be watching this game where, I mean, he was otherworldly. And I kept thinking, boy, the Spurs are going to end up coming back on them. And they just kept on holding him off. And this was without Donovan Mitchell, who had had the monster Friday night game. He wasn't even playing. Uh, in the game, but they've won five in a row and the jazz are going to, they're going to get back into this thing. And so I don't know. I mean, all those teams that that's what makes this upcoming trade deadline so fascinating, right? Cause the jazz are the last one. They're 10, you know, there's eight spots and there's 10 teams Yeah, because once you get past them, the Lakers, Grizzlies, Suns, Mavericks, Kings are all just going to be their race to the bottom. 
So, you know, Utah is an interesting spot because I, I've heard that for them, you know, really everybody's available aside from Gobert and Mitchell, right, on that roster. But that doesn't mean they're trying to just sell off everything and tank. I think for them, they're really just trying to reshuffle. Um, they're trying to get a mix together that they think probably positions themselves better this season and moving forward. And and one of the guys that I heard that they're targeting and is very available is Avery Bradley from the Clippers. I've heard Bradley has drawn interest from Oklahoma City and from Utah. So it'll be interesting if Utah will be able to add another dynamic perimeter defender in Bradley who can also hit spot-up threes. I think they, they could slot him probably into his appropriate role. You would see Bradley in more like a role like he had with the Celtics where a lot of cutting, spot-up shooting, coming off screens, and then focusing on defense. Um it would be interesting if Utah would be able to land him. And then, obviously, uh, Rodney Hood has been on the block as well for them. So they are surging right now, and there are tweaks that can be made that can probably help them too. Um, they're, I mean, they're, like you listed the, the five teams, uh, two and a half games within each other. Utah could throw themselves right in that conversation really, really quickly with all the talent they have. Because you got to look at the last five. Like We said they won five in a row. It's at Detroit, at Toronto who's like either the best or the second best home team in the in in the league they destroyed golden state and then the at phoenix but they beat them by a thousand and then they turned around and won at san antonio on the second night of a back-to-back so i mean it's not just the five wins without mitchell too those are like without five though that's i mean winning at toronto golden state and at the spurs during the course of those five wins like all right i'm 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 a believer because those are real wins, man. And, you know, we're mentioning the players. You know, Quinn Snyder is also one hell of a coach. Uh, sure. I think I think he might be – he's probably the most underrated coach in the league. I mean, you know, when you talk about the top coaches, you know, it's always Greg Popovich, Eric yep. Spolstra, Brad Stevens, Rick Carlisle. You know, there's a lot of good coaches in the league. But one of the guys that I don't think gets mentioned enough is Quinn Snyder. I think last season with the amount of injuries that they had uh, and the amount of success that they continued to have last year, despite all the injuries, was a testament to his coaching ability and his ability to slot guys into new roles um, and to position guys and and to the best spots that those players need to be in. And that's happened this year as well. They've had injuries over the course of the season. Gobert was out often, and now that he's backed, their defense is elevated to an even higher level. Um I, I think Utah, look, it's like with Denver. They're they're not going to be a, a contending team this season, but they are certainly a team that I think is a very, very tough out. All right, and on the flip side, I had mentioned Toronto, just uh, word of the wise. They are, they're 21-4 and four at home. So they are, what, what I, when I was saying earlier, that is the that is the best record in the NBA for home teams is Toronto. They are, if we flip over to the Eastern Conference, they are two games back from Boston right now. We talked at the beginning of the show of what a debacle Cleveland is, but then you've got the four and five seeds. Those are Washington and the Bucks right now, and they're within a game of each other. And then you get all the way down to nine is, 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 is Detroit. They're a half game out of the playoffs, but they're four and a half back from being the friggin' four seed with home court advantage, for God's sake. So we've got a bunch up there, too. Where do we cut the line off? I think probably after Charlotte, right? We'll give Charlotte a, a, a chance at least. They've won three in a row. We'll give them a chance at making the playoffs. And then once we get past them, it'd be Knicks, you Nets, You're going to give Bulls. the Knicks a chance, too, I think. You, you do you know, give, the, the, you yeah. give the Knicks? I think because they have Chris Apps, Porzingis. You know, I I think because they have a a superstar level player who, as we saw, especially early in the season, is capable of reaching remarkable heights. They are just so bad on the road, though. They're so bad. I mean, they went, they've lost three out of every four games on the road. And Porzingis would need to be the guy he was over the first 10 games of the season. But for that, for that, because of the, the, like the non zero chance that that happens, I think they, they have to at least be left in that conversation for now. They're only four games back, right? Right. I mean, if you know, one team slips well, and is, they get hot. You no, know, it is crazy because this stuff is switching so rapidly. If you look just a week ago, I think when we were talking, Miami was the four seed. They've lost three in a row, and now they're the seven. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on the flip side, Washington's won four in a row, and and they're up to the fourth seed after John Wall I got know. hurt. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? <laughs> Unbelievable. We're about we're about two weeks from Simmons dropping the Ewing theory on 
John Wall. I mean, maybe there's yep. something to it. They they certainly are moving moving the hell out of that ball right now without John Wall. It almost relates a little bit to you know, like with Denver, you mentioned they don't yep. have a traditional point guard. Well, Washington right now doesn't have a a quote unquote traditional point guard without John Wall, and they're really moving the ball extremely well. And you need John Wall, you know, mm-hmm. if you're the Wizards. But maybe what you actually need is for John Wall to evolve a little bit. Maybe you need the offense to utilize him more off ball. And will he be willing to do that? I don't know. Um, but perhaps. Uh, I also think that there is, and, and sometimes you can get through to teams like this, that in the absence of a great player, the team has a recognition that they can't be innocent bystanders anymore, that they have to do it. If they're going to be good, they have to do it as a collective. And so the trick is now when you reinstitute said player, still playing that same way. Because it is, you know, so many times when you've got a great player, your your periphery guys can become spectators, right? Yeah. You, they can become spectators. And once that guy is out of the mix, they realize, okay, none of us are individually talented enough to be able to do what John does. So we better do it as a group. And so, like, like I said, you, you want to try to reinstitute him and keep playing that same way take those lessons learned that you can't just when he comes back into the mix you can't just be a spectator again and watching john wall i mean you you look at their offense john wall just possesses the ball the third most frequently in the league westbrook is one Harden is two and then wall is third walker four lillard five i mean look without john wall they do need to fill that gap and to your point chris It'll be interesting once John Wall does come back, depending on his level of effectiveness after the knee procedure that he had, maybe they do utilize him a little bit less on the ball. Maybe they do utilize him more as a spot-up shooter and and move that ball. Um, But the thing is, is John Wall has a bad habit of just standing around when he doesn't have the ball in his hands and not moving. It's kind of like we've talked about before with Westbrook, like I've written about with Westbrook, where he needs to be better off-ball. All that applies to John Wall as well. Um, but not every player has a willingness to do that. Not every player commits to doing that consistently. And that's something John Wall needs to do. Yeah, I've seen the exact thing happen that I'm talking about with Tyreek Evans, who we are going to get to for a, a trade deadline guy. Because once he has been taken out of the mix, you've got all these other young guys. And the assist numbers like shot through the roof like immediately. Because they all have to pass to each other. Because what they would do is they would just let Tyreek bail him out, right? You get to the end of the shot clock. Everybody just stood around watching him play basketball. Whereas when when you took him out of the mix, now everybody's got to move. Everybody's got to pass to each other. And the teams, you know, they're not good, but they're they're attempting to be competitive night in and night out. And they they do share the ball and try to, quote, play the right way. But it's it's inevitable when you've got a player of that talent level a lot of times, guys just stand around and watch them be awesome. So we'll see where that goes with Washington when they come back. And we also got we got to talk about Tyreek, who's out there. Uh, he is going to be traded within the next couple of days for certain. And there are other guys whose names are out there. The trade deadline is actually this week. And Kevin wrote about uh, the trouble with the contracts, the max contracts that have been handed out over the course of the past couple of years. So we're going to talk about the trade deadline and that article that's now up on the ringer.com after these words. Hey guys, Valentine's Day is right around the corner and Pro Flowers and Sherry's Berries have teamed up to help you really impress your Valentine this year with their perfectly paired collection. Go ahead and think inside the box this Valentine's Day. This is really a one-of-a-kind gift. Your flowers and dipped strawberries will arrive together in a beautifully, specially designed box that'll keep your flowers fresh and your berries cold. Guaranteed. I got the box in the mail last week. Unbelievable. The flowers are gorgeous. The boxes, they've got like these ice packs in there that keep everything cold. It's pretty spectacular when you get the box. The box is big, and then you open it up, and it's got these two compartments. And in one of them, it's got the chocolate-dipped strawberries. And then on the other side, it's all the flowers, and it comes with its own vase. And you take them out, and they smell unbelievable, and they look great. Right now, our listeners can save 20% off on any one of the perfectly paired combinations or any other gift over $29 with the promo code ringer hurry and order today valentine's day is next week there's only one way to get 20 percent off a perfectly paired gift over 29 dollars, featuring beautiful blooms from pro flowers and freshly dipped strawberries from sherry's berries visit proflowers.com and enter our code ringer at checkout 
That's proflowers.com code ringer. All right, Kevin. So we got the trade deadline coming up this week. Um, I mentioned some of those names earlier today. I mean, we have not gotten massive names out there yet. Of course, you know, we still got the DeAndre Jordan thing hanging out there. Who knows what happens with that? Kemba Walker's name has been out there for a couple of weeks. I mentioned Tyreek. There are these young guys that will probably be gettable if a team has decided they're not going to commit to them. Julius Randle, Alfred Payton, Emmanuel Moutier, Shabazz Muhammad. Uh, it was reported that he is either looking for a trade or to be released. I'm sure a lot of teams are going to watch Shabazz Muhammad. They're going to be lining up. Are you out on Payton? Are you out on uh, Alfred Payton? That was an interesting name that popped up there. And, and Aaron Gordon's name has been out there, too. He's fine. He, you know, he is who he is. I you don't mean, want him as your starter. No, he's a yeah. fine. I think he's a fine, you know, point guard. He's a he's a pretty good defender, you know, when he wants to be. Uh, he's a solid solid passer he he hasn't quite developed as he would have hoped for but he has improved like we mentioned earlier with Moutier Moutier hasn't gotten better Peyton has over the last four years with Orlando all right here's here's the question this is the only thing I care about is Alfred Peyton in your estimation is Alfred Peyton capable of ever being the starting point guard on a really good team yeah sure I think he's capable will he be I don't know but I think he's capable yeah I say no I have one question real quick. Is Chris Dunn capable of being a point guard on a really, really good team? Yes. Okay. So The sample size is smaller on Dunn, by the way. I know. And I had a conversation with someone about this recently where Chris Dunn is like a couple weeks younger than Alfred Payton, right? And yes, he this the sample size is significantly smaller, but at the same time, they're they're pretty much the same exact age. And they're not too different as players right now at this stage. And it's just it's interesting. The different perspective, you know, Peyton came into the league so much younger and has so much more, you know, years behind him. We've seen so much more of him. It's like, no, he can't be. But whereas with Chris Dunn, there's so little that we've seen. So it's like, well, yeah, of course he can be. He, of course, he can get way better. But maybe Peyton is actually the better prospect. I'm not saying that's the truth, but I'm just trying to throw that thought out there. It's the shooting thing, right? I do think it's very difficult. And if right, right now, Peyton's a better shooter right no, now. But I'll like be today. first. I'll be first to apologize. But I do think you've got to force guys to to go over screen sometimes. He never sh- – I mean, he hardly shoots any threes. And I, I don't care what the percentage is. It's not a threat. And I do think in the absence of – and if he develops a shot, which we have seen many guys do over the course of their career, that's what it would take for me to believe that Peyton could become like a big-time you know, point guard. And I'm, I'm not – I'm not by any means giving up on him. I'm giving my opinion right now. Do I foresee a situation? There's so many great point guards where Alfred Payton is the starting point guard on an extremely good team. I do not. But I'm putting in the caveat that I could end up being wrong. Put it this way. This is this is why I wouldn't give up, you know, on Payton or, or done for that matter. I mean, you can't give up these on these guys because for me, it's like Victor Oladipo was a guy that I had ranked number one in 2013. He was my favorite prospect in that draft. Thought he was the best player in that in that draft. And after four seasons, I kind of gave up on him. I thought he was who he was. Um, and that's kind of the conundrum here, where you write off a young player before they're either in a position to become the player that they're going to eventually be or before they're mature enough as a player physically or with their skills to become who they need to be, who they will eventually become. So with Peyton... Four years in, turns 24 later this month. Dunn turns 24 next month. Three years from now, maybe they'll they'll still be the type of player that they are now. A fine point guard. Not the type of point guard you can win, really contend for a title with, but a good player. Or maybe those guys get into a different situation, new circumstances. Maybe they continue to improve like Oladipo did where things just start to click. And there's there's at least a non-zero chance that happens with Peyton. So I think he's somebody where if I'm a team really desperately in need of a point guard that isn't finding anything in this year's upcoming draft or doesn't see anything in free agency, maybe Peyton's a guy I go for. Restricted free agent. You have his rights. He's not going to get paid too much at all because of the, the nature of the cap this summer. I think Peyton's a good guy to gamble on. Interesting. Yeah, and, and with point guards, listen, nobody, nobody has learned their lesson on giving up on a guy or, or or thinking a guy will never amount to what others do than me. Because on a local radio show, I mean, I, I destroyed the Grizzlies over and over. I'm talking for four and five years for the commitment that they had made to Mike Conley. 
that they had just stuck with him, stuck with him. I'm like, yo, when are you going to, like, at what point do we have to decide the guy is not a star, right? And of course, of course, I'm friends with Mike Conley now. I made, <laughs> I made my apologies clear after, you know, years five and six of his career, but it took, you know what I mean? Like, one of the things yeah. he said was, you know, obviously what I was saying it was relevant in town. He knew I was killing him, right? He knew. He knew. And he is the nicest guy in the world. But he knew I was killing him all the time. And and one of the things that was funny, I remember when we had this hash out, and I was like, listen, I killed you for years and whatever. And he was like, he's like, I did suck. I did. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it, it sucks to hear it. But he did suck. Like, anybody can go back and look at the numbers. You can go back and watch the games. I mean, he's terrible. And next thing you know, you know, five and six years down the road, he wasn't a nine. He was a nineteen-year-old kid that played whatever six months at Ohio State, and had always played with Greg Oden and after, and Lionel Hollins just so believed in him, and I just did not see it. And you wake up, and five and six years down the road, the guy was one of the better point guards in the Western Conference and leading the team to seven straight playoff appearances. You know, a couple of years from now, you're going to be saying, "Why'd they give him all that money?" <laughs> <laughs> well, we need to get into that because you mentioned, um, listen, everybody knew that was a risk at the time. It's the cost of doing business, right? Do you want to have good players or not? <laughs> you know, Because if you're going to have good players, you've got to pay them a lot of money. And you wrote about this for The Ringer. Uh, more money, more problems. The trouble with max contracts is that superstars can earn even more than ever thanks to the latest collective bargaining agreement. But NBA players and owners are quickly finding out that the new arrangement isn't all that it was billed to be. And you do this uh, – you do this in through the prism of the trade deadline that is coming up this week. So first, uh, when you're coming up with the idea to put this, uh, put in pen and paper uh, together and, and write this article, what <laughs> I did use actual pen and paper. You did, okay. I, I, I mailed the letter. I knew you were to, old to school. My editor, Justin Barrier. I knew, I, I knew yes. you. I knew you were old school. I, he, I had I had to help him with some of my bad handwriting uh, while <laughs> while transferring it to to digital. But yes, okay, that, that's how we that's how we do articles at the Ringer. When you decided <laughs> to put your fingers to the keys. <laughs> You dickhead. Part of it was also written on the phone, so thumbs the phone. All right. Well, <laughs> okay. uh, the, the idea, it, this is spurned on a little bit by the Blake Griffin and obviously that argument that you and I had last week, but the idea that there are a, a, there are a lot of guys with really big contracts right now and you wanted to try to, I don't know, I guess explain the impact that this is going to have and is already having. So let me hear it. So the article kind of touches on a number of things. I would say one is that the increase in the supermax, the the addition of the supermax, the the subtle increase of the max contracts, that's not exactly working as intended. What the NBA was hoping for is that it would prevent scenarios where star players would leave. It would prevent KD to Golden State situations. But instead, what we've gotten is a situation where guys are leaving on their own will, whether it's a guy like Chris Paul or Gordon Hayward, or they're being traded because teams aren't wanting to give them the Supermax, like DeMarcus Cousins, more and more stars are being traded. Even if Paul George was eligible for the Supermax, which he wasn't, he probably would have wanted out anyway. So we're having more stars moving because of, A, teams might not be willing to pay the guy, B, the greater financial incentive isn't really enough for those guys to want to do it. And then the fact is, man, is that with this latest Blake Griffin thing, they did keep the guy. They gave him the five-year, 30% of the max max contract. And yet six months later, they were like, you know what? This is too much of a risk for us. And they pulled the plug and they dealt them. So we're getting more movement, more trading. More play stars changing uh, places, which wasn't what was intended. And you know what? I'm cool with that because I I love the excitement. And then I think you know the, the effect on the trade deadline is you know I've talked to a handful of NBA executives about this is is basically because of the fact that salaries are so significant. We have star players making into the thirty million dollars annually, forty million dollars in some cases. Once those eight percent increases kick in, for teams that have those guys or will eventually have to pay those guys. You need to gauge the value of those players. You're, you're not outright saying, you know what, he's not available. When your star player makes $18 million, which really isn't a 
it's a significant amount of money, but it's not $40 million. But when your commitment is, is that significant, I think more owners are more willing to listen to the possibility of letting go if it if it's not working out. If you're paying the luxury tax like on a team that can't get out of the second round of the playoffs, well, maybe you're better off selling that guy and reshuffling the deck. And I kind of talked about that in the article with John Wall. So I think we're seeing that happen where more stars are being traded for numerous reasons. We're seeing more rumors involving star players because of the fact that they're so expensive. We're seeing it with Kemba Walker. Even Aaron Gordon has a big payday coming up this summer. Who He, he might not get the max contract, but it makes sense for Orlando to at least gauge the market. And then because there's so much money going to those players – and because teams overspent the past couple of seasons with the rise in the cap, there's so little cap space this summer that guys are not going to get paid. There's going to be a market correction this summer where a guy that who may have gotten $17 million a couple of years ago might only end up getting six or seven this year. So it's a, it's a weird, weird year for trading, but also a weird year. It's going to be even weirder for free agency. Okay. Hear me out on this, okay? Because uh, this is this is one thing, and obviously we had it out about Blake last week. <laughs> which, uh, well, I want to thank everybody that listened to the show yeah, and the, the <laughs> ridiculous amount of response that we got on that. All right, so this is where I come on these things. And when I read your article today, and you highlighted, as you mentioned, John Wall, right? And this kind of piggybacks on the discussion we had with Blake last week. I understand that there are guys that get paid an immense amount of money, like you know a. Huge percentage of your cap is these guys. So the first thing I do, and I'm not talking about contracts and what they're going to look like in four years. I'm talking about what these contracts look like right now. And is that player a great player? And I look at it and I say, John Wall is a great player. And the, and the Washington, their problem is not John Wall. Their problem is what they paid Otto Porter. Their problem oh, yeah, is what they paid Ian Mahinmi. Um <laughs> The problem with the Clippers is that they've got Danilo Gallinari making the money he's making and uh, and, and and giving you literally nothing. I, I don't know, man. I look at it and I say the problem is not these stars and that and and the and the salaries they command. It's that these teams, like you, can look at them and they end up getting the focus and they end up getting the blame, but they have mangled the rest of the roster. Those usually are not the massive mistakes. The massive mistake is not the extremely good player that gets paid a boatload of money. The massive mistake is the no good player or the average player that makes insane amounts of money. So that's where I'd fall on that. And the other thing is, by the way, and I'm not going to get real fired up this week about it, but when I was reading your article, you mentioned the John Wall contract. And and during the course of it, you said something. uh, I don't want to misquote you, but it said he's got 169 over four years. Uh, starting in 1920, including a whopping 46.9 million when he's 32 years old. 32? Like, is it, are you writing that to make it sound like he's old? Like, you're still <laughs> yes. awesome. Like, why do, why do, why does the age keep on getting, like, it's getting younger and guys are better and better at older ages than they have ever been in league history. And yet, when we talk about guys and like, oh, well, he's going to be, 33 by the end of that contract. I'm like, what? Or 32? <laughs> so there's a lot of guys that are extremely awesome at age 32 and older than that. Okay, the reason why with John Wall is I wouldn't say that about any player, right? I'm not going to say, oh, 32, he's going to be making this much. It's going to be a problem. But with John Wall, I'm saying maybe it could be a problem because of the fact that just a year ago he had double knee surgery. Right. He had knee surgery prior to that as well. And then he had another one just last week. Mm-hmm. Th- that that's where my concern is where where you're talking about John Wall okay, where that's fine. Th- his success is so dependent they, on athleticism. They it, just say it's injury history. Don't say it's cuz he's 32. Yeah, I mean, okay, that, that's <laughs> fair. Uh, but I also do mention the injuries in there where it's it's not just age, it's, it's he's mistimed the injuries. He's already a low efficiency half court scorer. It, it, it's age and like it's when I say age, it's not about 32. It's like Five years from now, if injuries continue to mount and if there's any regression, boy, like that contract could look I bad just, in the last I, two years. I, I just, it could you look know, bad before that. Oh, stop. Here, here, this is what I'm trying to fix with you. 
Because you did this last <laughs> week. You did it with Blake Griffin. You did, oh, he's slow now, and he can't, he can't even jump anymore. And, all the, and now, like, and now John Wall sucks, right? The problem is not Blake Griffin, and the problem is not John Wall. It's all these no. other fucking bums. Look. And that's what I'm telling you, Kevin. The problem, the Wizards aren't deep and don't have enough. It ain't John Wall's I'm, problem. John Wall's making $18 million this year, $19 million next year. I'm saying it's great, not- great players getting paid or possibly overpaid is not nearly the problem that the Ian Mahimis of the world and their contracts are. That's what I'm saying. Talk to me about the problem with what's going on now is not the stars and what they get paid. It's the non-stars and what they get paid. And yet the focus becomes like, oh, well, Blake Griffin's got this contract and John Wall's got this contract. Well, hell, they deserve it. They're outstanding players. Talk to me about the guys. The reason that this is a problem is because non-stars get paid massive money because Kent Bazemore makes, you know, is a role player. Okay. And he makes 15, it, 18, 20 million dollars, whatever. We're, we're hitting on, you know, ultimately, which was, you know, one of the focuses of the article where it's like, I'm not saying like it's a major problem that stars are making big money, that the focus is like, well, shit, it becomes really difficult to build around some of these guys when they are making max money. That that that's the difficulty. So yes, if you are making other mistakes, then you're just really screwing yourself more, and you're just just running on that playoff treadmill of mediocrity where you're just a six seed, a seven seed every single season. Really, the topic is, is like, how do you construct your team? And some NBA executives I talk to think that you'll see fewer of those contracts like that you're alluding to where guys are getting overpaid who ultimately don't deserve that. So if the smart teams are slotting guys into the value of what they really are, you might have your handful of stars making a ton of money. Then you'll have those teams with those stars trying to build really younger, cheaper rosters around those said stars rather than overpaying for those role players and free agency like that. I mean, that's what I would say. Non-stars get paid like stars because of what's happened in the last two years. And that shouldn't happen on the team side that that ends up being a mistake. No, I mean, you just look George Hill, who we talked about earlier. I mean, his contract was three years, $57 million. Jeff Teague got $3 million, $57 million. You know, I mean, like I said, Gallinari, probably Blake, he, he gets paid over $20 million a year. I mean, these are non-star players. They're good players. These are non-star players. Drew Holiday, uh, you know, hasn't made an all-star game in a long, long time and has had his own injury history. And I like him just fine. But he got five years, $125 million. That, to me, is the issue. The issue is not the great players and their contracts. The problem is the non-great players and what they get paid now because some of these guys are getting 20 25 million dollars a year and and they're not forget the whole you can't build around them um you wouldn't even like that that's not even a consideration the 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 second class of players got paid like stars you know because they came up on free agency at the right time and that's what's killing everything to me not great players getting paid a lot of money and you every week slandering them blake griffin john wall get out of my face these guys are awesome (laughs) these guys are awesome they are blake griffin can't jump anymore and and john walls up i think you just gave him a a a wheelchair and said he's a he's gonna be a risk (laughs) at 32 years old trying trying to make him like paul pierce (laughs) no okay okay all right i totally feel you with everything you're saying totally I'm with you. Really, like the focus is, is just the, how this climate is changing. Because guys are getting paid so much more money, we're having guys change places more, which wasn't intended. Because there's so much more money, teams are more willing to gauge the value of these guys, you know, in conversations. And that gets leaked out and gets turned into trade rumors that Kemba Walker's available mm-hmm. when really, like, he's probably not going to get traded. It's just Charlotte figuring out his value so if the time comes when it comes to trading him you're prepared that's what it's about it's about how when there's more money you know on the table for these guys eventually not this summer because this summer there's not much out there but when the market corrects and things perhaps go back to normal 
it's going to be a situation where those poorly run franchises who are giving max money to guys that aren't deserving, they're just going to get screwed, man. It's the well-run franchises in this new climate that are going to thrive more. I think, I think perhaps maybe, I mean, this is, you know, it's impossible to predict, but it's possible that those teams at the top could separate even further away than they are now. And I'm not saying it's going to be the same teams currently that we have, you know, at the top of Golden State, Houston, Boston, Toronto, whatever. I'm just saying that the teams at the bottom could really sink even more. There could be a greater divide, more haves and have-nots. That that's that's what I'm saying could happen with the new climate. That it's it's an atmosphere really ripe for more mistakes to happen. The smart teams aren't going to make those mistakes, but the bad teams will give those mistakes, and they're just going to screw themselves more than they ever have before. All right, last thing. The Blake thing came out of nowhere, but we're not going to do another show before the trade deadline. No. Is there a big name or the biggest name that you think, if we're just trying to take a shot in the dark, the biggest name that moves the end of the week or by the time we talk again? And you can't say Tyreek Evans or, you know, any of the guys that are. I think DeAndre Jordan is a chance. I've heard, you know, Portland has had conversations with DeAndre on a package built mostly around expiring contracts, which is kind of weird. It's kind of figure, hard to figure that deal out. And then and then Milwaukee, I, I heard some noise, some Henson Parker type of deal. I'm not sure that they would actually want to do that with Jabari back and actually looking pretty solid immediately after returning from his second torn ACL. But I think DeAndre Jordan is a chance. Other than that. I mean, I mean, is there anybody that comes to mind for you, Chris? I don't, I don't see any big names being traded aside from him. My shot in the dark would be Kevin Love. Kevin Love. Oh, yeah, that, that's another possibility, too. That would be the Yeah, one. that's another one. Okay, yeah. Kevin because Love. Yep. you've got the whole team turning on him, him handing the ball to Isaiah Thomas like he's two years old. You know, obviously the hand's messed up now. But, yeah, I, w- I would say – because yeah. I think you could get real value for him and maybe strengthen your team. And, you know, with Kevin Love, right? Like, let's say you're the Cavaliers and let's say you believe LeBron's leaving this summer. Yep. He's, if LeBron were to leave, he's probably a guy you're trading anyway, right? So if you're trading Kevin Love, maybe you can maximize value by doing it now mm-hmm. rather than waiting until the summer when he only has the one year left on his contract. Whereas now you get a year and a half rather than just the one year. I heard Windhorse saying a couple of weeks ago that Kevin Love would love to play in Portland back home. It's an interesting one. With that, I mean, I, I don't even love the fit for Portland. I mean, well, the I, idea would be a McCollum type deal. Yeah, right? I don't. I mean, I don't know if I wouldn't do that. If you're Portland, yep. would you give CJ for Kevin Love? I actually think that uh, Love would be a better fit with Lillard than CJ is. I don't know. There's there's going to come an end of that dynamic duo oh, backcourt, yeah. though, right? Like, I mean, but if you have a Lillard. If you're a playoff team going against the Blazers, you're right. running them in pick and roll every oh, single time. I know, I know. I mean, it's. I mean, no. I mean, and then what you would try to do is have um, Ben Wallace, Dennis Rodman, and Tony Allen as the other three guys. <laughs> With, yes. with Damian Lillard and Kevin Love. I think yeah. that's what you'd have to have to not give up 195 points a night. Actually, you know, when I said Kevin Love has one year left, it, it's possible he would opt in mm. till that, to that second year remaining. So he gets paid $24 right. million next season and then 26 for the 2019-20 season. He could opt into that depending on the he situation. Just, he just looks like he's hating it there, and it appears they don't like him either. And so... <laughs> I mean, the thing, the thing that's so crazy with him is, I, I mean, it still feels like he's capable of being at least close to the guy he was in Minnesota. But my thing is, is, is that the guy that you want? I mean, in today's yes. league, the league has changed so much. Yes, it's a guy I want. Good grief. What is your problem with great players? I don't, I, I, I don't understand what you. What I'm saying, I'm not. Kevin listen, Love. what I'm saying, I'm not. I'm, what I mean is, like, I'm talking about the exact version of the 2013-14 Timberwolves Kevin Love. I'm not sure if that's the version oh. you want. You, you probably want something in between, like, what, what he was then and what he is now. Where well, he it's is. It's like he- more, more three-point shooting, you know less post-ups but still more post-ups than he's doing right now because his playmaking is so damn good right that and that's what's been missing the most is his passing ability he just doesn't have the opportunity to be the the great playmaker that he is so maybe it's like you put him into like make him Nikola Jokic Mm -hmm. right 
where he's like one of your primary playmakers. Maybe maybe that's like the new age Kevin Love if he gets traded. All I know is the guy plays 28 minutes a game and he averages 18 and 9 while shooting 40% from three. Those guys, they're just not around. He's a great player. He's He's a great great player. player. And I think you can get great return for him. I do. Like if you're just saying, hey, we ain't winning like this, so we better just get some return. You can't trade anything else worth a shit on that team. I mean, what what else are you giving up? Channing Fry, Tristan Thompson. I yeah, mean, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing. He's the one thing that you could actually improve your team by moving. The thing with Kevin Love is, you know, he's another guy that's had a handful of knee injuries too. This fractured, you know, hand was just a fluke thing. You know, it's disappointing. But he's had a handful of knee injuries over the year too. Over the years too, he had a knee surgery last year. Um, he's banged that knee up a handful of times. Watching Cavaliers game, you can see him reaching down for that often. Um, if I'm a, if I'm a team that's trading for Kevin Love, I would I would want to be totally certain that he's going to be healthy moving forward. That's fair, Kevin. It is always a pleasure. I can't wait for the trade deadline uh, later this week because inevitably we will be shocked by some of the things that take place for sure. I'll catch up with you next week, brother. Absolutely, Chris. See you next Tuesday. All right. Thanks for listening to another Ringer NBA show. If you dig what you're hearing, go give us a rating and review on iTunes, and we will catch up with you next week. Hey.